Hello and welcome into Downtown, the podcast. Episode 52, that's one a week, 50, that's like a year, Carrie Haskell. That is a year. Crazy. Yeah. Happy anniversary to us. Uh, I'm Rich Kimball. That's Carrie. We originate our show from Bangor, Maine. We do a daily radio gig on the Zone radio stations. Owned by author Stephen King. I drop that in once in a while. You can find us online, downtownwithrichkimball.com. Pleased to have you along this week. We're brought to you every week by Cross Insurance, where security meets strength. And by Pineland Farms Dairy, Maine Cows, Maine Milk, Maine Cheese, Pineland Farms. Two interesting conversations coming up this week. A music legend who's done it all from successful singer as part of the British invasion in the 1960s to an acclaimed Grammy Award-winning producer of some of the biggest albums of the 70s and 80s. Been a manager, has worked with everybody in the business. These days hosts a show on the Beatles channel on Sirius XM Radio talking about Peter Asher, who will join us in the second half of the podcast this week. Kicking things off, one of those voices that when you hear, you only have to get about three words in to say, well, I know who that is. And for 30 years, the most popular phrase he's uttered is, we'll leave the light on for you. Tom Bodet, humorist, author, spokesman for Motel 6, part of the panel on Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me on NPR as well. And we had a chance to catch up with him recently. Here's Tom Bodet on Downtown, the podcast. Hey, Rich. Thanks for having me. I do appreciate it. Been a fan of your work for a long, long time. And I want to go back to almost the beginning here. You're, you're building houses in Homer, Alaska back in the day. How did NPR learn about you, and how did that connection get established? Well, I was doing these uh, local commentaries on the local news at our little public radio station there, KBBI, um, for a while, just for fun. A buddy of mine worked at the station, and, and they found their way down through the hands of a couple of Alaska producers to all things considered in Washington. And the next thing I know, you know, there, here was a whole new life for me, which was, uh, which was better than the old one somehow. Well, yeah. And not long after that, uh, the folks from a, a little motel chain worked out. That connection has served you both pretty well through the years. Can you believe it's a 32 years this year that that, since we started doing that, it's yeah, I, I did that for the money once in 1986, and it's just become uh, um, it's just become this amazing, long and wonderful ride. I, I'm a very fortunate guy. Now, the story I read on the unimpeachable source Wikipedia uh, said that uh, they they liked you because you sounded like someone who might stay at a Motel Six. Is that right? Well, that was said to me at at that time. <laughs> I do remember I said, when I was asking all the questions at the beginning of it all, like, you know, how much and, and things like that, um, I finally, I said, and, and why me? And they said, well, you do sound like the kind of person who stays there. And, and, and all I could say back is, well, I am the kind of person who, who stays there. So that worked. Fantastic. Now, what led you to uh, go from one side of the country to the other? Well, that was more um, family matters. My uh, my wife Rita was pregnant with uh, who would be the first uh, grandchild on her side of the family, and her family was all out in the east here. And 
So somehow uh, that was enough uh, gravitational pull to get me away from Alaska and, and into the loving arms of family. And, and I got to say, uh, living in Vermont as we have now for, for the last 16 years has, has been a, a, another wonderful and unexpected um, surprise and a gift to my life. Well, a gift to all of us is uh, Saturdays on NPR. Wait, wait, don't tell me. You are the third panelist to be on our show. Uh, Amy Dickinson, Paula Poundstone has been on with us a bunch of times. Now, Paula insists that for all the time she's been on, that she has almost never won. Is she exaggerating a little? Almost never is very accurate. Um, Never is exaggerating because she has uh, she has won a time or two, um, but the, the reason for that is not because Paula Poundstone, as you well know, um, is in any way dim-witted or uninformed. But Paula is a true professional in that if you ask her a question and she thinks of something that's funnier than the answer, you're going to get the laugh before you get the answer. <laughs> Now, is it true that uh, it, everything is unscripted on Wait, Wait? Yes, that's true. Everything the panelists do, the only thing we know going out there is that bluff the listener question from the night before, and we are able to write those, of course, before the show starts. But all of the other questions and the stuff that comes our way, is uh, that's the first time we hear it. It's, it's an awful lot of fun. We're talking with Tom Bodette here on Downtown. We've all got our favorite Tom Bodette work, but my producer, Carrie, especially loves your work on Animaniacs. Oh, yeah. She must be, what, about 35? <laughs> I, I'm actually a little older than that. I'm 50, but, uh, yeah, I, I was... But he's a, young at heart. I'm young at heart, and I was a huge fan of, of that old-style animation that Animaniacs brought back. And your right. your good idea, bad idea bits were just hilarious. Yeah, that was the most fun I've ever had working um, doing during that that series for them. Uh, um, they were having so much fun, and I would go down to L.A. Uh, to the studio. You know, it was a Spielberg production and Warner Brothers uh, um, uh, animation, and it was just such a wonderful. Um, wonderful time, uh, and and it's uh, the only thing. My son, my oldest son, was uh, in the sixth grade. That's right. And I was doing something that made me cool. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you've also got a really wonderful project that you're involved in right now uh, in Brattleboro, Vermont. Uh, Hatch Space, a nonprofit woodworking school and community shop. I was reading about it over the weekend. This just sounds like a wonderful opportunity for all kinds of different people in your community. Yeah, well, it's uh, uh, what it is is uh, my, our intention with it is to bring people who um, into the world of, of woodworking and woodworking because that's what we know. My partners and I are, have been woodworkers all our lives. And, and the real point of it is to get people making things with their hands, um, working together, and, uh, and building community around something other than our glowing screens or, you know, things such as that. Maybe it's old school thinking, but um, I really believe we're at our best when we're talking to each other face-to-face and, uh, and sharing something that we've done ourselves. 
But And it sounds like it's a kind of space where people can learn woodworking, but also uh, have access to perhaps the kind of tools they don't have in their own home shops. Yeah, that's right. We have a lot of people um, involved with us who are, um, you know, seasoned professionals um, who maybe need a 44-inch wide belt sander once a year. Um, and they're going to come down and be in our shop because we've got one of those. And hopefully while they're, they're there, they'll, they'll be able to uh, interact with some of our, our less experienced members, and everybody learns a little bit from each other. Well, that sounds wonderful. Now, you're also involved in, in local government there in Vermont. How has that experience been for you? Well, it was a great experience. I was on the Dummerston Select Board for seven years, um, which was really it wasn't as much fun as Animaniacs, but almost as silly sometimes. Uh, and I enjoyed it very much. I'm no longer on the select board, but I expect I will get, get back to it one day. It's, uh, you know, Vermont, like Maine, you know, we're a very rural state, and the towns still have, a, you know, a good measure of control over uh, solve a few problems. Well, we wish you continued success in everything you do, Tom. Uh, we've been fans of your work for a whole lot of years. It's great to have you on with us this afternoon. Thanks so much for being with us and hope to do it again well, sometime. Well, and th- thanks for having me. And I apologize I had to do this while, while driving. I appreciate uh, um, your, your listeners uh, having uh, um, patience for that. Thank you, everybody. Good guy, Tom Bodette from Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me. And, of course, a Motel 6 near you here on the podcast. We'll be back with... Music legend Peter Asher coming up after this very short break from very good people at Cross Insurance. Since its founding in 1954, Cross Insurance has grown from a small family-owned agency that started in Bangor, Maine, into one of the largest super regional insurance agencies in New England. With the network of offices throughout New England, Cross Insurance works with top carriers to provide maximum value to you, your family, and your business. We are proud to be the official insurance broker of the New England Patriots and would welcome the chance to provide security for your team. For more information, visit CrossInsurance.com. Cross Insurance, where security meets strength. Since 2005, Pineland Farms Dairy has been making the finest cheese in Maine. That's a bold claim, but it's absolutely true. Their cheddar, Monterey Jack, Pepper Jack, Baby Swiss, feta, and those oh-so-good cheese curds are made with all-natural milk from Maine. You can find Pineland Farms cheese at Hannaford Supermarkets, Shaw's, Whole Foods, and other great shops throughout Maine and New England. It's a staple of our weekly grocery list. Soon as the old container of cheese curds are gone, got to get that up on the list so you don't forget it. Yes, it has not been out of my fridge for quite a while. No, the block cheese is if it's all good. Check them on out. Visit online too at PinelandFarmsDairy.com. Maine cows, Maine milk, Maine cheese. Pineland Farms. Please lock me away and don't allow the day here inside where I hide with my loneliness. I don't care what they say, I won't stay in a world without love. In 1964, Peter Asher and Gordon Waller took that Paul McCartney song all the way to number one, one of the early arrivals right after the Beatles in the British invasion. They went on to have 10 top 40 hits. Peter Asher then moved into the world of producing, working uh, with talented artists like Cher, James Taylor, Linda Ronstadt, receiving multiple Grammy awards for his work in that field, has been an artist manager. These days hosts a wonderful show on Sirius XM Radio's The Beatles Channel, 
called From Me to You. We had a great time talking with music legend Peter Asher here for Downtown, the podcast. You also just got back from, uh, let me see if I get it right here, the Rock and Romance Cruise, right? Yes. Uh, well, yes, it was actually interesting because I did three cruises in a row, oddly enough. Two, two were work and one was recreation because I did um, the Flower Power Cruise, which is a 60s cruise for a week. Then I did, as you say, the Rock and Romance, which is a 70s-flavored cruise for a week. So I had, you know, the first half was more Peter and Gordon-oriented, second half oriented towards the next leg of my career, which was, you know, James Taylor and Linda Ronstadt and all that kind of stuff. And then, oddly enough, it coincided exactly with a plan my wife and I had made a couple of years ago to, to go and do the Galapagos Islands which is astounding and amazing, and I could talk about forever. Um, and that, of course, was not working. The uh, Galapagos penguins had no interest in, in hearing well without love. So uh, we were there to see them. But it was, so I did three cruises in a row. Well, I want to go back to the beginning of your career, because uh, people here in the States may not realize, we talk about the British invasion, and uh, Peter and Gordon were among that very first wave to have hits here. But... What's astounding is to realize how many incredibly successful British acts there were from everybody from Cliff Richard, Lonnie Donegan, and others who had tried to have success here in America but didn't until the Beatles kicked that door open for so many groups. That's exactly true. I mean, well, actually, you mentioned Lonnie Donegan. He's the one one of the very few that did. I mean, Rock Island Line was kind of a hit mm. in America. So he was one who broke through. And I think the other one, probably one of the biggest ones, weirdly, was Aka Bilk, if you remember. Stranger on the Shore, yeah, of course. Huge hit. <laughs> but, but certainly our biggest stars, Cliff Richard, Tommy Steele, you know, Marty Wilde, all, all the English rockers, Billy, uh, Billy Fury, people who preceded the Beatles, had no success in America whatsoever. Cliff had a bit of modest success later on, but compared to the U.K., and the rest of the world, actually, Australia, even Canada, you know, what, what one used to be able to describe as the British Empire, where he was a huge star, but never in America. You're absolutely right. The Beatles broke the door down, and the rest of us followed them through gladly. But I always say that, you know, the British invasion was kind of 90% the Beatles and 10% all the rest of us who got lucky. But we were indeed, the, we immediately followed the Beatles. The first number one of the British invasion after the Beatles, after I Want to Hold Your Hand was number one, the next British Invasion flavored number one was indeed World Without Love, which, of course, didn't worry them at all since uh, Paul wrote it. So, <laughs> well, so and really continuing their reign at the top. You had a little advantage there, too, because uh, Paul indeed. was dating your sister Jane, actually living in your house for a while there. Uh, nice to have that songwriting talent in the house. But I'm, I'm fascinated. You've been friends with Paul now for more than... 50 years. I've never met or interviewed Paul, but it, it seems to me for a guy who has had experiences and successes that, that most of us can't possibly imagine, he seems to have stayed pretty grounded through the years. Uh, how, how is that possible? I think so. I mean, he, he it's almost deliberate on his part. He, he tries to remain sort of one of the guys. And of course, it's impossible because he isn't. You know, mm. like, at a certain point, you have to go to face it. You know, you are different. You're insanely famous. You're a genius musically, and you're one of the most highly respected musicians of the century. But he has found a way to deal with that, no question. I mean, he's not, I don't see a lot of Paul, but we see each other from time to time, and he does indeed 
managed to maintain a, a balance between the necessity of living differently because, you know, you're so instantly recognizable and famous and everybody wants to say hello, and at the same time remaining a, a pretty normal chap, which he has. You were part of an incredible London music scene in the 1960s. Could you relate the story uh, of the time you got to see the Jimi Hendrix experience? Am I correct from the Royal Box? Yes, you are correct. Um, but it, the story was this. Um, Jimi Hendrix had been around, you know, and um, he'd showed up in London. Some of us had seen him. He'd sat in in a couple of clubs, like the Scotch of St. James and the, the what, was the, what was the other one called? The... Uh, can't remember now. It'll come back to me. Um, a couple of places where people would sit in, and we we were aware of his astounding guitar skills vaguely. But then he kind of disappeared for a bit while he put together the band, working with uh, Chaz Chandler, who was his manager, who you you might know was the bass player in the in the Animals. Mm. Um, he was a big Jimmy proponent and was managing him, and they put together the experience with Mitch and Noel. And then the premiere of that band was as part of a show at the Savile Theatre. Savile was a theatre in London that uh, Brian Epstein had leased uh, to put on shows. He wanted to promote some rock and roll shows. <laughs> so he started doing shows at the Savile. I think it was once a week or something. And And one of those shows was the premiere of the Jimi Hendrix Experience. There were several other acts on the show, including Denny Lane and his uh, string band, which was a terrific uh, band that Denny Lane had put together. That might have been when Paul and Denny first met, I don't know, after Denny, of course, was in the Yardbirds. Anyway, uh, Brian Epstein was, as it were, the theater owner, and every theater in London has a, a royal box, which is provisionally available to the Queen and members of the royal family should they wish to attend. But since the Queen inexplicably had not made a request to attend the premiere of the Jimi Hendrix experience, <laughs> um, I'm sure she's sorry she missed it, but that meant that the theatre bought the royal box was for the use of the owner of the theatre, Brian Epstein. So thus it was that I ended up with a couple of Beatles um, sitting in the, in the royal box uh, watching for the very first time Jimi Hendrix do the full Jimi Hendrix experience stuff and, you know, the setting fire to his guitar and playing with his teeth and all that stuff. And not only that, but as is, is, is mentioned in some of the history books, Jimi had heard Sergeant Pepper, the, the song, um, a couple of days earlier on the radio. It was just out. The Beatles had just released it and had learned it off the radio. That's right, yeah. And taught it to his band that afternoon <laughs> and opened the show with it. Wow. So not only was the whole thing magical and extraordinary, but to the Beatles' amazement, I think it was, I think, I can't remember to be honest, I think it's in the book somewhere, but I think I think it was three Beatles out of four, and I'm, maybe John wasn't there, I can't remember, sorry. But <laughs> um, I do remember Paul being stunned and amazed that, not only was Jimi Hendrix extraordinary, but he opened the show playing a brand new Beatles song, note for note, and it was breathtaking. We're talking with Peter Asher here on Downtown. Even with the success as a recording artist, you knew pretty early on that you wanted to be a producer. What was it about that role that interested you? I thought it was fantastic. I mean, once I figured out what a producer did, you know, I, I when Gordon and I first got in the studio, you have to remember, it's such a different era now, you know, you can make records 
easily on a laptop and and in your bedroom or whatever. And but back then, until you got into a real studio with real musicians, there was no chance of, of making anything resembling a, a a real record. And so, uh, you know, when when we got our record deal, which is a separate story, but there we were at. Abbey Road Studios, well, EMI Studios, it was then, then changed the name at that point. Abbey Road was just the address, not the name. And and there we were, and I kind of went, this is incredibly cool. I love the technology of it, the idea that the producer could, could try out ideas and have arrangement ideas, of which I had many, and, you know, hire musicians much better than oneself and tell them what to do. I thought that was extraordinary. And and wonderful, and I still do it to this day. So I did decide, you're absolutely right, quite early on, that, that being a record producer was something I wanted to do. It was a career ambition. Becoming a manager was entirely separate. That was never an, an ambition of mine. and was predicated on a whole other series of events. But uh, production was something I definitely had my eye and ear on from the moment I stepped into the studio. You produced James Taylor's first album through Apple Records. It was not a commercial success, but you believed in him so much, though, that you left Apple behind and moved to America and then produced that incredible string of albums that he did in the 1970s. What what made you believe so much in James Taylor? It's like, what's not to believe in? I mean, uh, first time he came to my flat, uh, you may know we were introduced to each other long distance by a guitar player called Danny Korchmar, wonderful player, great friend of mine. He'd accompanied Peter and Gordon. We'd become friends. And he was subsequently in a band called The Flying Machine with his childhood friend, James Taylor. And when that band broke up, James gave him my phone number because James was headed to London. So James called me out of the blue in London, said, I'm, you know, Danny's friend. And, uh, and I said, oh, great, you know, come over. And he came over the next day next evening, played me a tape that he'd cut. And, you know, the the songs were amazing. The guitar playing was amazing. I'd, he'd clearly been listening to Segovia and Julian Bream and great classical players because he played with that kind of precision and accuracy. Uh, plus, he, he wasn't playing classical chords or folk chords. He was playing almost jazzy chords, kind of chords from all this listening to, you know, Manhattan's records and that kind of thing. And... So I loved all of that. I loved his voice. It was a beautiful, folky voice, but didn't wasn't singing folky licks. He was singing, he was clearly owing more to Sam Cooke and Ray Charles than he was to, you know, Pete Seeger and Woody Guthrie. So all that appealed to me. And then on top of it, finally, of course, these extraordinary songs. That first time he, he played for me, my flat, he did, played something in the way she moves and something's wrong and um, knocking around the zoo and, you know, I, it, I was blown away. And that's when this peculiar conversation ensued because as it happened, I just got this new job as head of A&R for Apple Records. And I said to James, look, I'm working for this new record label. Um, I can sign people, you know, would you like a record deal? And he, he said, yes, please, I'd love one. That was pretty much it. It was that simple. And I took him into Apple a few days later to, to meet the uh, board of directors, which is to say the Beatles. You had an incredible run of success as well with Linda Ronstadt. And my goodness, the the list of tremendous albums that she did in the 70s, Heart Like a Wheel, uh, Simple Dreams, Hasten Down the Wind. I, I know she's she's been inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, but I, I still don't feel like she's been given 
her do oh, enough. Is there a, is there a Linda, better Linda, singer? That stuff. Linda doesn't, you know, she didn't even mind about the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, and I kept saying, you should be in there, you know. She, she's very good and genuinely replies, you know, that's not why I sang. Uh, it wasn't for that kind of stuff. She, But she, yes, absolutely. Linda cannot be overrated. She's breathtakingly good. She's the finest singer I ever worked with. And the, um, James Keach, you know, the actor has produced a, yes. a brand new um, documentary about Linda that I haven't even seen yet. They just premiered it two nights ago at the Tribeca Film Festival. Got rave reviews. I, I did a lengthy interview for it, so I don't. I'm, but I haven't seen even my bit, so I don't know. But the 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 documentary is apparently fabulous, and I'm not sure how how or when it's actually coming out. I'm getting a copy to watch um, next week. But um, she is the best singer I've ever worked with in my life. We're talking with Peter Asher on downtown. You came up in the tape days, the the two track, and then the four track days. But I understand that you you love digital recording. You're not a guy who looks back at the the good old days of tape. That's correct. You're you're very well informed. I don't. I mean, I get people saying to me, "Oh, you're so lucky you grew up with tape." And I'm I'm so happy to see the back of it. You know, <laughs> they don't talk about now the you know tones and azimuth and. CCIR and NAB equalization, and then let alone the fact that you know the, you carry around big heavy rolls of tape with you everywhere you go. You you couldn't you know you had to look watch out for it, and if you made a copy, it didn't sound nearly as good as the original tape. So there was there were nightmares associated with tape. And admittedly, when digital started, it had disadvantages all of its own. It didn't sound really good. It took them a while to get it together. Initially, I was a agree with the people who said it sounds a bit too crispy and thin and inhumanly, you know, or inhumanly bright. But but they they've actually got converters organized that's really sounded good and up the the standards so you could do it, you know, ninety six K and stuff and, and not yet technical. But but digital now sounds good and it is so much more convenient. All the things you can do now were things we wished we could do back in the day. You know, you'd have a couple of notes a great take with a couple of bad notes in it. And you wish you could just tune those two notes and make them fit. And, you know, the kick and the, the kick drum and the bass went together on that one beat, but it was such a great take. Now you can fix all that. And I love to, it can be overdone. Of course, things can be again, fixed to an inhuman degree, but the ability to correct mistakes that we've all wished we had, back in the day. Now we do, and it's fabulous. Uh, do you have any upcoming shows? I know you've been doing shows occasionally with Jeremy Clyde of Chad and Jeremy. More of those on the docket for you? Yes, I've got a few more um, Peter and Jeremy shows. I've got some of my memoir show, which is the one I do on my own with a whole bunch of video and, and, and stuff. Um, I don't know them all in my head, even though I should, but there's a website, peterashamusic.com. That, that has all the up-to-date itinerary and upcoming shows on it. I, sh- I should I should be well-equipped with a piece of paper and plugging myself <laughs> like crazy. But the truth is, I look about a week ahead in the, in the calendar, make sure I know what I'm doing today, and move on. Well, and the, there are some coming. I know that. The Sirius XM show, from me to you, uh, it airs Thursday nights at 8 p.m. Eastern Time, and then you can hear yep. it again Saturday at 5, Sunday at 8 a.m., Tuesdays at 1 p.m. An absolutely wonderful show. Oh, thank you. Thank you very much. It's fun to do. I mean, it's, it's hard work, as, as you well know, because each week 
you know, I'm faced with a blank piece of paper and, you know, now what am I going to do and talk about? Because, of course, I end up playing a lot of the same songs again and again. And because it all has to be Beatle or Beatle related or, you know, Beatle influences and that kind of thing. But, uh, yes, yeah, so I, sometimes I do get intimidated when it's drawing near. And each time I go away, of course, like doing these three cruises, I have to make sure they're stocked up with a few shows before I go. And as I come back, I'm going, oh, God, you know, the, the supplies nearly run out. I have to get back into the factory. In fact, that's where I'm going this afternoon is to record another couple of shows that I wrote uh, over the weekend. Well, Peter, I've enjoyed your work for many years with all the various hats that you've worn. It's a real treat for us to have the opportunity to talk with you today. It's been a great pleasure, and thank you very much. You clearly did a bit of homework. You you, you, had, you had a lot of information already, and it's a, it's a joy talking to you. Thank you. Peter Asher on Downtown, the podcast. I still, we've been doing this a while, Carrie. I still get a little, uh, just a weird, like a chill, when you realize someone is on our show telling these stories and talking about these incredible people and events that they were a part of when Peter Asher is talking about watching Jimi Hendrix from the Queen's box with, I was it three Beatles or four. I, I can't remember. (laughs) That's the kind of detail that would stick with us. If we were in that. I would would remember how many Beatles I was sharing the, uh, the theater box with. (laughs) That's fun stuff. Very nice guy too. Peter Asher. With us, uh, thanks to Peter, thanks to Tom Bodette of Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me, and thanks to you. Hey, do us a favor: tell your friends about the podcast, subscribe, get them to download episodes, and uh, if you really want to help us out, uh, go to uh, wherever you get your podcast from, iTunes or or other venues, and, and give us a good review. Unless you hated the show, and then frankly, keep it to yourself. But if you like the show, hell, five star review will help a whole lot. We sure would appreciate it. Thanks to our sponsors as well at Cross Insurance, where security meets strength. And, of course, Pineland Farms Dairy, Maine Cows, Maine Milk, Maine Cheese, Pineland Farms. We'll see you next time right here on Downtown Podcast.